Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Ernst Lozen, universally known as Ernie, is one of the key figures in the modern renaissance of German wine. Listen to his chat about vintage cars, why Riesling is like a good actor, adept at playing many roles, what he's learned from making wine in Washington State, and how great wines begin in your head. Hi Ernie, how are you? Hey, Tim, I'm good. I'm very good. A little bit hot, but all okay. <laughs> are, you, are you in Germany or are you traveling? You, you travel more than anybody else I know. Yes, I, think. I know. I'm in Germany, but I just was 10 days on the road, came back yesterday. I was first in Switzerland, then I've been going from Switzerland to Burgundy uh, because we bought a property in puligny Morache. Have two you? Weeks, two years ago, yeah. And we are now under construction, renovating the whole thing. It is half of the old Vieux Chateau de puligny Morache. Oh, you bought the house, have you? Or, yes, or... yes, yes. Only property, no, no vineyards. Yeah, vineyards property's cheaper vineyards. than vineyards, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, nobody can afford vineyards there. Houses are cheap against the vineyards. <laughs> well, I'm definitely coming to see you next time in, in Burgundy. Yes, you have to. I have two great guest rooms there. Oh, fantastic. We're on. Um, lots to talk about. I mean, you're, yes. you're like the king of Riesling. You know, you're the king of the Mosul. You're the king of everything. Um, but you know, I want to just ask you a little bit about your family, because these these vineyards um, have been in your family for what, 200 years or so? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the history of the family, it's mainly it depends which family, because it is two families which came together. My yeah. father and my mother had been single kids, you know, yeah. so have both have a, quite a history. In, in the Mosul. So, but altogether, you can say it's going back 200 years. 200 years. I mean, I just wonder, did you always want to be a winemaker? Because I know you studied archaeology at one point, didn't you? I mean, well, you know, to, to be frank, you know, I mean, that was not my first desire. <laughs> but only the reason, not that I didn't like it, it was more the difficult, say, relationship I had to my dad, you know, to my mm. father, you know. That was also the reason, you know, I studied um, in Geisenheim, you know winemaking, but I never could really thought to ever to work together with my dad, you know. Yeah. That's the reason the second passion was archaeology. So after after Geisenheim, you know, I started then, that was not far in Mainz, uh, archaeology. That was only 20, 30 kilometers from, from Geisenheim, you know. Hmm. And so and then I started, um, yeah, well, then I started archaeology. But um, to be frank, you know, um, it's a little bit difficult to become a very famous archaeologist. At least here in Germany, it's the way I always say there are two options <laughs> you get, you have, um, you can do as an archaeologist. No, either you're becoming a taxi driver or you're going social welfare. But <laughs> many more options are not there. All the people I started, I think only one or two got a job. <laughs> I mean, you, you could have been the Indiana Jones of archaeology in Germany. Yeah. I <laughs> so from that point of view. It suddenly happened that my dad became very, very sick, you know, mm. really very, very sick. And my mom phoned us all of us up, you know. We have four brothers and two sisters. 
um, said, look, you know, we have been running this estate now for a long time and it was never a major business of my dad, you know. Mm. Um, he was a lawyer and he was MP, member of parliament and had a lot of other other things um, where, he, um, where he had his income. Um, so my mom said, look, you know, everybody has the chance now to take over the wine estate. I give you two months you know, to think about and if um, if nobody is interested, I'm going to sell it uh, because wow. your dad can continue. Because it was said that my dad will be, or the doctor said, uh, my dad will be dead uh, latest in Christmas. You know, and she said we have to find a solution, and that was 1987. You know, and so uh, so and it was all my brothers and sisters who pushed me in there and said, look, no, you they, said, take the they said you. They said, you've been to Geisenheim, you do. Yeah, yeah, you've been to Geisenheim and you have yeah. to take the winery, you know, before you're going social welfare. We're not going to support you. You better take take over a rundown winery. You know, <laughs> I always say, people always ask me, how, how, how you get a winery? And so I, I always say, you only have to study the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that was, and you know, you started with a terrible vintage, didn't you? 1987, yeah, which was yeah. one of, you know, one of the worst vintages of the 80s with 84. Yes. Uh, but, but I mean, it's, it, and, and then half the staff resigned, didn't they? And they yeah, it was bad, you know, but the funny thing is, this terrible vintage in the beginning of the harvest, 87 was really a terrible vintage, it looked like 84 or, you know, these, 87 or 77 vintages, you know, not very ripe. Oh my God, disaster, high acidity. But therefore, that begin, I mean, you know how it is, you know, you're young and you are very ambitious, you know, and you want to change everything. You said, no, we're doing selection now and we're doing this and this. And the old staff, you know, I always call them these old Nazis. Uh, they had been, you know, for 35 years working in the vineyard and did anyway what they want, you know, because my father never cared about it. My grandfather didn't care about it. And so, you know, and then you came in and wanted to change everything. And they wanted to twist my arm and say, look, you know, uh, we're not doing this, you know? And I said, no, we have to do this. We have to selective harvest now. We have to do this and this and this. And so then, no, we never did this. And so, and they, and then one evening they said, look, in the beginning of the harvest, uh, we quit, you know? I mean, but they thought, they wanted to twist my arm that I agree that they can continue what they ever did. And you said, fine. Um, I said, look, no. And then it was my wine, my coming, I mean, future winemaker, Bernie, old colleague, you know. This uh, is Bernie. Bernie, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ernie and Bernie. <laughs> the Sesame Street people. <laughs> we didn't have a clue what we're doing. <laughs> but is it true that they didn't tell you where the vineyards were? You had these well, hundreds I mean, of parcels. You know where, you which were your vines? It, um, it is, it, and I, I came, you know, I came from mines. The situation in these days, it was impossible to know, I mean, where the vineyards are. Because look, oh, we have five villages where we have vineyards. Only in Vela, you know, we had 4.5 hectare. And that was 186 parcels. <laughs> and they're not square parcels, plot like in the New World. The smallest parcel was 15 wines, 15 square meters, in the middle of fucking nowhere, you know? <laughs> I mean, so in the middle, no roads, nothing, you know? And there was no signs where, where you could see, oh, this is our little parcel, this is our little parcel. I mean, that was nearly impossible, you know? And the and the reason, and it was Bernie who said, "Look, I said, look, we have to, we have to agree that they're coming back, otherwise we never get this thing done." And Bernie said, "Look, you know, but you know, you will have a huge problem. First, when I took over the winery, 
I mean, it had twice as much debt as turnover, you know? So then uh, he said, look, that's four or five people. And you know, people who are 30 years in the business, you know, you have to pay if you kick them out sometimes because you can't come along. You have to pay a lot of money. A pay, I mean, you have to release uh, and pay off. That is another 30, 40,000 Daymark, Deutschmark in these days by four. You don't have the money anyway, you know? So, but if they quit, you don't have to pay anything. Let these old Nazi go, and we have, we have to look. <laughs> but was it, was it the idea that by picking, you pick very late because you waited yes. till everybody else had picked, and then you saw where your vineyards were? Right? Let's let's say Bernie, Bernie, who was a specialist in a tropical pick disease, you know, um, never a winemaker. I said, okay, Bernie, I appoint you to the winemaker, and I will care about the vineyards, you know. And then Bernie said, okay, what is your plan? I said, the plan <laughs> is, the, pl the plan is, there is no plan. You know? So, the first thing, we stop everything. We stop the harvest and so, you know, that we think what we can do, you know. And then I get this brilliant idea. I said, look, you know what? We wait as long everybody pick all the vineyards. The leftovers must be ours. Or <laughs> <laughs> and that's our plan. You know? I love it. It's but that is the reason... First of November in '87, the weather changed completely. You can say first of November in '87, we got a whole November of most beautiful sunshine, dry weather, absolutely gorgeous, and the vintage had been going from shit to not very good but acceptable. We are, I think, the only one who at the end harvested Spätlese. You know, all the others had only Qualitätswein, a very bit cabinet. I love it. I mean, you know, and you finally took over, didn't you, on the January the 1st, after this difficult 87 vintage, 1988. What, what sort of state was, we know what the winery, the state the winery is in. What about the German wine industry in 1988? Oh, we, you know, the, 1988, late of the 80s, or the, during the 80s, the, 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 the German wine industry was in a terrible stage. I mean, it was the only thing what was known in these days out of Germany was the privilege, you know. Liebfraumilch, Plunan, Black Tower, Madonna, Liebfraumilch, and all these cheap brands, which had been in Tesco and Sainsbury, you know. I mean, that was Germany. And I, I remember being the first time, uh, that was 1983, in the UK, you know, uh, trying to to help a little bit. My father finding a, an importer, you know, in, in mm -hmm. the UK. Um, I had this brilliant idea to get a bed and breakfast, you know, and have been getting a lot of coins, you know, and I've been going downstairs to the phone and then have been going through the yellow pages from A to Z, you know, wine importers, you know. I tell you, it was the most terrible three days I ever had in my life, you know. Oh, I'm a winemaker from Germany. Do you, are you interested? What? I'm a winemaker, a fine winemaker. What? <laughs> yeah, can you give me a container of the promise that I don't pay more than one, uh, one Deutschmark 10? I said, no, 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 you don't understand me. I'm a fine winemaker of Germany. Are you crazy? You didn't ever heard that Chardonnay is now sexy? Nobody wants Riesling from, from fine wine growers, you idiot. No, boom, hang up. Well, that had been going really until S. Until Siegel, Walter Siegel. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very misunderstanding. It was, it was in a terrible, terrible state. <laughs> but, you know, you, you had these amazing vineyards, didn't you? Yeah. You know, that, that have been part of the two sides of your family for yeah. a long time. You know, Vailner Zonnenur and Bern Kastellerlei and Graka Himmelreich and Utzigewurz Garden and Edna Prelat, all those. I mean, 
incredible. So, I mean, you know, is that you started presumably with the vineyards once you knew where the vines were, <laughs> and you realised, hey, I've got some, you know, I've got some good raw material, right? Yeah. I mean, so that's that's how you started, wasn't it? Excellent raw material, because yeah. that I mean, on the one hand, a lot of my colleagues said, oh my god. You're going to anyway bankrupt. You have to plant the vineyards new because all the vineyards have been all old and uncrafted because my father, as my grandfather, had been very tight-fisted. They never planted a vineyard new. Because they had no money. So, yeah, they tight-fisted, didn't want to invest private money into the winery. And so all the vineyards have been 80, 90, 100. We have now 140-year-old vineyards, you know, Mm. all uncrafted, you know, on Mm. their own roots, you know, which is, I mean, brilliant material, you know. So from that point of view, the material was there, and I think it wasn't that that that, that difficult to make great wines. As long you, I mean, you know the old saying, uh, "Less is more," you know. Yeah. And so we have been just looking back to the traditions, you know, as my grand grandfather made wine, you know. I mean, I mean, clean, you know, you work clean in the cellar, you know, but leave the wines. I mean, fooder, everything indigenous fermentation. I mean, I th- I didn't thought that this is so difficult as long you follow rules as they did it in the old days you know mm. I, I love this idea because you know you had these fantastic vineyards and most people would say that great wine begins in the vineyard but i love the way that you describe it you say that great wine begins in your head just yeah. tell us what you mean by that exactly yes that's i think this is pretty simple sure mm. i mean even if you have great vineyards sure the wine starts uh, in the vineyard but if you don't have an, any clue no idea how a great wine tastes you know mm. I think that is the biggest problem. And I always um, explain it. You know, you need an idea what a great wine is. And I must say, you know, Stuart, in the very early days, Stuart helped. This is Stuart Piggott, your friend, our mutual friend, Stuart Piggott. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And he, because he still don't have a driver's license, and he needed always a, a driver, you know, to visit all these people. And that, for me, that was the best education, not Geisenheim, mm. to visit. I, I remember first time being with uh, Leonard Humbrecht, you know, mm. we've been going to Burgundy, we've been going, so many great winemakers. I met through him, you know, in mm. 88, 89, 90, because I drove, drove him, you know, mm. and I learned all the time there, you know, and that you know, that gave me an idea. What it, How does a great wine has to look like, you know? Sure, you need great fruit and so on, but how are you going to produce it? And I think the best example is, uh, to, to explain this this saying, I was invited by my um, by my Swedish importer, you know? Hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, great, and I, I invite you for dinner. And he said, look, you have another small grower from Noviant. I, I import wines from him too. Would you mind to, to 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 invite him to? I said, yeah, no, no, no problem. And I remember I poured a ninety-one Chateau Latour, you know, um, or ninety Latour, you know. And so, and I poured the wine, and then um, and this young man, you know, who never was visiting Bordeaux or anything else, or great winemaker or great wine, never tasted it. He said, "Oh my God, this is the wine is horrible. You know? uh, it's leather and horse smell, horse stall, you know." Um, and I, he described the wine very well, you know. And, and he said, "This wine would never get an AP number in Germany," you know. <laughs> and then, and then he said, "Oh, th- you want to taste my red wine?" And they made some Pinot Noir, you know. And it was a very, very pale, rather rosé wine, you know, with, with, I mean, a lot of residual sweetness, you know, no mallow, you know. And I said, look, you know, and this is horrible for me. No, no, this is a great wine. This as this is what my father told me I should do red wine. Mm-hmm. And you see, how can this 
person ever make a great wine when he never ever had great wine, tasted great wines mm -hmm. in his life, mm -hmm. and to get an idea how um, that doesn't matter if it is white or red, you know, mm -hmm. he should get first an idea what is a great wine and how do I work towards a great wine. Yeah. Then you learn that you need great vineyards. Then you learn that old old vineyards, you know, old uncrafted vineyards make better wine. But this is old. But first, you have an idea to work yeah. there, you know, to get an idea what is a great wine. I think I think it's it's very true. Let's talk a little bit about Riesling because you know you've probably done more than anybody, I'd say, to promote Riesling all over the world. I mean, I think you could argue it's your greatest achievement of many achievements. Just tell us what you what you love about Riesling. What, I mean, I know you're. You're utterly well, passionate think, about it. I think what's what's uh, what what is so much to be loved about Riesling is definitely um, that it's a versatile grape variety. But that is possibly the biggest handicap of this grape variety, you know, mm -hmm. because people are, especially the average consumer, you know, or even a consumer who who is interested in wine but doesn't mm -hmm. want to learn too much about wine. Mm -hmm. For him, it must be simple, you know. Pinot Grigio is always a Pinot Grigio, no? It is always dry, a little bit fruity, blah, 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 you know? Uh, red wine, uh, or Chardonnay nowadays, is unoaked or oaked, you know, or whatever, you know? Um, but there's, the, you know, with these wines, they always think they have a certain idea, you know, how Chardonnay tastes, or how Pinot Grigio tastes, or like Sauvignon Blanc tastes, you know? With Riesling, they always have this idea, oh, I don't know, I think it's mostly sweet, but then they're confused if it is dry or medium dry or if it is noble sweet, you know. And it's I think it is often too much uh, that Riesling can do so many different, you mm. know, uh, styles, you know. As I always say, it's like an actor. Riesling is like an actor and can play in a lot of plays, you know. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, but I think that is the disadvantage of the crab variety. If it if, if it would be if it would be a little more simpler, you know, that there would be say only three styles, you know, a dry style, a lighter, fruity style wine, and a noble sweet style. But it would be always in this. Then then it would be a little bit easier. But you know, but you but you, you love its diversity, but you also love its transparency, don't you? And its yeah, nobility. Well, yeah. And for wine freaks, it's the greatest grape variety in the world because I mean, you know, I mean, the people who love Riesling, they really dive in and knows everything better. Oh no no no, this is uh, and try to explain it. Other people who got it totally wrong. Uh, it is for wine freaks. It's a great grape variety, but. Mm. For the average consumer, it's still a little bit difficult, you know, yeah. or they don't know what to expect. You know, I mean, is, is that changing? I mean, I read somewhere yeah, that Ger Germany sells more more, more Pinot Gris uh, in the UK than it sells Riesling. I mean, you know, consumers don't understand it, do they? Yeah, the funny thing that we are not only the biggest or the largest Riesling producer in the world, we are the largest Pinot Blanc producer in the world, mm -hmm. and the second largest Pinot Gris producer in the world, and the third yeah. largest. Pinot Noir producer in the world, you know? Mm. So, I mean, that is, uh, and, and the same in Germany, by the way. I mean, mm. Germans are not Riesling drinker, you know? It is more Pinot Blanc and more Pinot Gris mm. consumed in Germany as Riesling, you know? Mm. And that works very well. Again, why? The Pinot Gris and the Pinot Blanc is all one style. They're all mm. dry, fruity, mm. you know? So the people have no, but if it comes to Riesling, but in Germany, the Riesling is, I would say, to the Riesling in Germany, which is consumed, is also nowadays 90% dry. Well, yeah. That makes it easier, I think. I mean, do you think the best styles of the Mosul are, are off dry and sweet? Uh, I think with Ries, it depends where you are, you know? I would never, here, as I'm in the Mosul, you know, I would never give up the fruity style cabinet, you know? Mm. 
Und der leider style Noble Switch äh, Auslöser, Spätleser. Mm -hmm. Das ist, I think, because we have the acidity, it is a very unique niche for reasoning here in Germany, especially from the north, you know, mm -hmm. Nahe, Middle Rhine, Mosel. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have also a domain down in the Rhine River, Villa mm -hmm. Wolf, you know. Mm -hmm. Here we don't produce any fruity style wines. We produce everything in the dry side. It depends where you are. I think in the south, The dry style makes more sense, and mm. it is basically already the way that all the because Nibli Fraumich is over, it's dead. That mm. was sweet plonk, you know, <laughs> um, and which came from down the south. That's over, it's dead. So what what they do in Pfalz, Rheinhessen, Baden nowadays, if it is Riesling, it is all dry, you know. But mm. here in the Mosel, I think it is so unique, especially a, a cabinet with eight percent alcohol, you know, yeah. which tastes wonderfully, you know, and not. Not uh, uh, you know sticky sweet you know yeah. very refreshing rather as you bite into an apple this refreshing mm -hmm. you no know, schmooh spritziness mm -hmm. no I think this is a unique uh, the unique uh, thing which I think the Mosel can do best yeah. that would be stupid to give it up. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, especially on the weather we're having at the moment, yeah. a glass of that, you know, people might think listening to this, oh, that sounds horrible, it's sweet. It's actually the most refreshing thing, yeah. almost one of the most refreshing ones oh, of all. Yeah, out of the ice, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you, you make some of the top wines in Germany from some of the greatest sites, but you also produce quite a bit of affordable sort of mass market wines, you know, the yeah. Dr. L style, which are brilliant and great value. Do you get as much pleasure from doing both? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you know, because the, the, doc, the Dr. L started with Dr. Losen, you know, because it was for the UK market, because, you know, it was Nigel Glendale, you know, our old importer from Walter Siegel, you know. He said to me, and that started 94, I think, you know, he said, Ernst, how should we poor English people ever understand a label which says, Schloss, Buckelheimer, Kupfer, Krumer, Riesling, Tocke, and Auslese, you know. <laughs> this is impossible, he said. This you can't. We can't sell anything like that, you know. And I said, Nigel, believe me, I will create a label which is so simple that you poor English people even will understand it, you know. And so then, what I did, it was '94. I created, and before that, it was only Dr. Losen Riesling, mm -hmm. you know, a trocken, you know, mm -hmm. um, or Dr. Losen Riesling fruity, mm -hmm. whatever, you know. And so I shortened Dr. Losen to Dr. L, you know. Vintage reasoning on it, not even the not even the region, not even Mosul, not even <laughs> Germany on the front label. Only three things, and I said, Nigel, if your people don't get it now, then sorry, <laughs> well, they never will. <laughs> I don't know what's good, and then it became a success story. But you know, for me, it was I started this brand not as Dr. L as Dr. Losen reasoning already in 1987. And I thought always, and that I still, I still think that it's, it's still my um, opinion. You have to give the cheap wines, and that was in these days not the thing. My father or all my colleagues, or the colleagues of my father, you know, even famous, they never give. The, they gave always the attention, and that was by the by the way in Burgundy too. I know it from old uh, Amor Rousseau. They gave always all the attention to the best Grand Cruz and all, they had been always great. But the lower end wines, you know, they didn't give any attention. I said, ah, nobody. And that was the same with a simple Qualitäts wine. Oh, ah, come on. We take the, you know, the leftover, you know. And I think if you want to have success, you have to give the, the entry wine the same attention and the full, you know, the full intention. 
and try to make as good as a wine from the entry level as, as yeah. you do from your top wines. No, I yeah. think that's serious and that gives you also success. And that is basically Dr. L get the same treatment, the same attention, you know, as our Grand Cru in Aprilat and so on. Yeah. No? And it's a lot of work. We, we, and, you know, we, we, we invested in a lot of ideas which we developed ourselves, you know, um, because, you know, in the old days, you know what they did? They fermented these mass varieties dry, put sweet reserve on it, you know, psh, you know, steer it two times, you know, <laughs> on the bottling line, you know, horrible stuff, you know. But we all know that stopped fermentation is so much, makes so much better wine. We clean even our Dr. L, which is sure it's a big production. All the, as, as soon as the juice is pressed and we make it ourselves. And, and you stop the fermentation with what? With sulfur or with by chilling no, no, the... We, we, we ferment first. I mean, we clean all our juice, no? Mm. Totally clean, you know? That's a lot of work in this kind of mm. big, you know, a production, mm. no? Uh, so we have, a, in the during the harvest, 24 hours, you know, um, mm. in the cellar where, I mean, we have three shifts, no? Mm. And then everything get cleaned, you know? Everything get uh, fermented then uh, in a very clean way, under you know um, sure in this production with um, under uh, here under control you know I mean temperature controlled you know and so and even that it is very difficult to to stop a twenty five thousand liter tank we stop everything is stop fermentation like mm. we do with our high end cabinet made as you know yeah. that's a lot of work you know and so yeah, rather, give, rather than just adding sugar back which yeah, is let, let it ferment without yeah. you know without uh, um, uh, cooling and yeah. everything. So yeah. we, we give these wines the same attention. And then the difference is we produce everything ourselves. We yeah. produce it ourselves. It's under the regime of the head yeah. winemaker of Bernie you now. Yeah. And so and he gives these wines the same attention as our grape wines. Yeah. Therefore, I think, and Dr. L is now in 80 countries around the world, you know. And so wow. a lot of countries, number one in this entry level, you know. Yeah, that's great. the highest price of yeah. the entry level of Riesling. And that is often had been winning against colleagues, you know, in blind yeah. tasting, you know, yeah. against really famous winners. But you have to give the, these wines attention, you know. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, listen, you, you, you've, you've mentioned the vineyards you have, you know, in the Phelps. What people might not know about you is that you also make wine in both Washington State and Oregon, didn't you? They're two very different projects. I mean, one is a and joint venture Australia, with Chateau Saint Michel, and in Australia, and in or together with uh, Telmo Rodriguez, we're doing a riesling here with them together. You know? Oh, brilliant! Yeah. So, so yeah, you love these kind of joint ventures, yeah? Yes, yes. The Australia, the, this water, water, you know, became immediately the most expensive riesling, uh, Australian riesling in Australia. You mm. know. And what, and what have you learned from those joint ventures and those projects with other people? Oh, well, I think these, these, I mean, I learned also here with Eroica in Washington State. I learned a lot, you know, you know, about what, because in these days when I started in 99, we didn't have these kind of heat waves here and so. But, I mean, you know, Eastern Washington is a fucking desert, you know. I mm. mean, with 3,500 sunshine hours, I mean, we're far away, even with all the global warming. We are still far away from watch Eastern Washington, you know. <laughs> we have now, in the old days, we had, say, something 1,100 sunshine hours. We are now up to 1,300, but not 3,500, you know, as in Washington State. A desert, you know, hot, you know. Uh, and you grow, you're, and they're growing riesling out there for Eroica, yeah? yeah? Yes, yes, yes. It, it works, you know. But they have a cooler climate towards the harvest. That's the mm. most important thing, you know. Mm. But what I learned with the 2003 vintage, you know, which was the, this very hot vintage here in Germany, you know, I learned a lot how to handle the 2003 vintage, especially in the Pfalz, 
by learning so much from Washington State, you know. In this case, I learned more from them. But I told them also how to handle Riesling because they did hey, Riesling. They handled Riesling like Syrah, deficit irrigation, leaf plucking, you know, exposure to the sun. I mean, this Riesling was full of uh, phenolics, you know. I mean, uh, overripe, too early overripe, not enough hang time and everything. I said, look, folks, with Riesling needs just the opposite. Needs hang time, shading, a little bit more water, you know, no leaf plucking, you know. You have to hang a little bit more fruit, you know, no exposure to the sun. And that we, we really, we learned, I mean, at least also with this, I, we learned a lot uh, with all the ideas I brought in and what I learned from them, you know, how to extend the hang time in Washington, you know. That was the whole secret was, and we got now four weeks to six weeks more hang time out of it, you know. We harvest now as here in the Mosul. We start harvesting with these vineyards now as we start here in the Mosul. It's interesting. It's fascinating you're talking about global warming and, and what you learned from working in Washington, really. Um, you, I read somewhere you said that your greatest fear is that global warming, climate change will make Riesling unviable in the Mosul. I just wondered how, how worried are you now when I mean, we're living through the weather in, Lon- you know, in, in London this week and I'm sure all over Europe is crazy. Right? Are, are you worried? The, the only thing I'm worried is uh, not about the global warming uh, here for my region, you know? mm. not for my region. I told mm. you. I know in Spain or in Southern mm. Europe, it is a totally, it can be a disaster. Mm. Uh, but here for my region, I'm not so so frightened about it. Um, the only thing I'm frightened about is water, you know, that we might not have enough water in the future, you know, mm. uh, because irrigation will be difficult here, you know. But so far, what did global warming brought us, you know? Mm. At least every year, a drinkable vintage. Mm. If I look back to the vintages of my dad or my mm. grandfather, where they have only three good vintages in a decade, yeah. three to four undrinkable vintages in a decade, and two to three mediocre vintages. Yeah. I'm pretty happy that we get every year the grapes ripe. And no, and we're not talking about overripeness. Mm. I mean, even with our dry wines, we select only healthy grapes for our dry wines. No? Mm. It's still difficult. If you use 100% healthy grapes for the dry wine, it's mm. still difficult to reach 12 to 12.5. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We still have to work hard for And that is basically what I'm looking for, mm. for the top mm. Grand Cru's to get with the dry wines, 12 to 12.5 alcohol, you know? So we are far away from overripeness, you know? Right. So the Mosul has almost benefited from, from yeah. global warming we so far. Yeah, we benefit a lot of it, you know, yeah. because we can, I mean, that is possibly one, also one of the reasons that the dry wines from the Mosul mm. uh, are, are getting gorgeous again, you know, gorgeous. Yeah. You know, last time 120, 130 years ago, end of the last century. For no, this 19th century. Listen, I, I don't want to upset you, but I want to ask you a little bit about German wine laws because I know uh, you're very outspoken about them. Oh my god, <laughs> are they too complicated? Are they too precise? Just not fit for purpose? What's wrong with them? Uh, it's too many. You know, it's too many regulations. You know, I mean, I mean, and we have, I think, uh, we have more wine inspectors uh, in Germany. You know as whole of Europe have together, you know? And so, and there's always these people and then looking here and counting bottles and this and that. I mean, and it's also stupid things, you know? I mean, a small example, you know? I mean, all over Europe, you have, you are allowed to plant, say, uh, 10, 15% of, uh, in this uh, in this case, uh, of a, to fill the barrels, you know? Um, say, if you have Vilna uh, Sonnua, you have to fill it and then, uh, we don't do 15%, you know, uh, uh, but 
for ex um, and then you can blend it in. Um, not even worse, you can also blend other grape, blend other grape varieties in. You know, we have an a state riesling. You know, not even the vineyard name. You know, only Dr. Lawson riesling blue slate trocken dry. You know, here we we thought that this common law. You know, uh, to fill the barrels, we took uh, some estate riesling red slate. You know. That was three or four percent over the year to fill the barrels, you know. Mm. The wine control came, the wine inspector came and said, No, we are not allowed to sell this wine. I said, Why? Yeah, you put three you should put red slate into blue slate, you know. And I said, That is not even a vineyard name. And it is unpresented easily, you know. He said, you know, but this is not allowed. I said, It is everywhere it is allowed to I mean, I am allowed with Erna Prala to mm. to put fifty percent crimage in there, you know. Why should this not be allowed? He said, mm. Yeah. The 71 wine law didn't know about these blue slate and red slate estate rieslings, no? And therefore, there is no regulation. Therefore, you are not allowed to do it. I said, yeah, but isn't it common sense, no? And this is so crazy. I mean, So what happened? People, Did you get to bottle the wine? No, no, we had, we're not allowed to. We had to declassify to take oh, wine. Man, crazy. Well, like, I can see why you're upset about them. <laughs> I mean, one of the things, I, many things I like about you, I've had some very good evenings drinking wine with you. I mean, you're a real wine lover. You know, you've said that you that wine started in your head and that you drink great wines. You know, you've got a cellar and, you, and you're very generous with your cellar. I, I just wonder, are, are you still learning from other people's wines? Oh, yes, yes. I think you, as more you talk to great winemakers in the world, you know, and you listen carefully or you visit them and they show you this and that. And so uh, you always learn something at least that you say, uh, oh, Bernie, shouldn't we try this? That should be, that should, should that make sense to me, you know? And it doesn't matter if it is a red wine or white wine, you know? Uh, certain things um, can make sense, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to me. Um, and uh, so I know, I still learn, you know, I still learn, you know, and you're still, I'm still looking for the perfect wine, you know, what is the perfect <laughs> wine? And it doesn't matter if it's red or white. And so what is the perfect wine? What makes the perfect wine? And you try every year to get closer to the perfect wine. You will never reach it, but it is because it is this kind of, you know, curve, you know, uh, which you're coming at, at, at to, to go to, to come to the 98%, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, perfect wine. It is exponential more work, you know, to make a nice wine, <laughs> say that is easy, you know, but every percent or every 10% is exponential more work to, to achieve only three or 4%, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if you ever get the last one or 2% <laughs> to the hundred, it might be 100 more, 100 times more work, you know, as the first fifty percent, but what that, what's, that's what makes you so good. You see, but I mean, I love your personal motto, which is "keep on trucking." You know, does that mean does it mean you're an optimist or or a fatalist? You've always struck me as a very positive person. Oh, no, you just I get on with it. I mean, you can. Oh yeah, I mean, in this world, you have to be very positive. You know, otherwise you jump off a bridge here, yeah? the new one, <laughs> the new Mosul Bridge. Yeah, the new Mosul Bridge. You know, <laughs> we got already thirty three suicides there. Oh shit, <laughs> in man! Two years. <laughs> God. So from from that point of view, if you're not positive, and I think it, it doesn't matter, you still have to be, um, you want to see what can you do, what can we do better, you know? And so, mm. and look, I mean, my, 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 my younger brother, Thomas, you know, without, I would never have achieved. He's a he's German mechanical engineer, very organized, very precise. He's the back office, he's organizing everything. And so with him, I'm more, you know, lesser organizing. <laughs> and 
but I have still so many ideas, you know. And sometimes people say, how, 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 how long you want to do this, you know? And so, you know, I said, well, don't think about it, you know? And so I have now so many things done again, you know, as they did in the old days. I think I have 450,000 bottles now in the cellar, which will be released in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. The whole cellar is full because my grandfather produced wines and left them that was standard winemaking, two years in the barrel, on the full yeast, without batonage. He did three years. He did eight years. His best barrels, he kept eight years. I started this 10 years ago. You know, the cellar is full with all these things. And then I bottle these things. And, for example, the one which is eight years in the barrel comes out in, uh, uh, in after 15, 20 years. I have Spätlese, which I produced in the old style before 71 wine law, exactly in the style as my grandfather in the 50s and 60s, the cabinet in Spätlese, you know. They're coming out in 20 years, you know. So, I mean, and this year, when all the wines have been on the table, and I always choose, oh, we this we bottle in three years, this we bottle in five years, or this uh, we put away for 20 years. We put for, My brother said, I don't have space anymore. I don't know. I always thought we produce wine to sell it, or not only for putting it away. And I don't have space anymore i don't want to to do it we already have rented four cellars where should i do it I said, I <laughs> I think... and i said i don't understand all this thing and i said tommy tommy look i have this passion or this this vision you know that i'm doing something as it was done 120 years ago when german recently had been the most famous and most expensive yeah. wines in the world so i put choosing it the same way but they drank it with age, they drank it with 15, our grandfather, 15, 20 years old, you know? And so we're doing something which will be in 20, 30 years, so unique, you know? So, and, so you've got lots more to achieve, which is fantastic. Yeah, and you're so still you're achieve. still inventing. And, and, and you know what my brother said to me? What? You know what our old Bundeskanzler Helmut Schmidt said? I said, no, what did he say? He said, if you have visions, go to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so I want to ask you a final question. I could talk to you all day, but anyway, you know, you're Mr. Wine in so many ways. Is wine your entire life? Do you do other things? Are you still interested in archaeology? I know, I know you're you're a reader and you're a thinker as I, well. I just saw this morning a big report about the Celtic people, you know, mm. the Celts, and um, I love. I mean, I don't have too much time, but you know, that I collect old uh, vintage, uh, old only English vintage cars, you know. Um, barely only Jaguars. <laughs> How many have you got? Huh? How many I have you got? Now three. I get an MK2 from 65. No, 61. I get an E-Type first series from 65. And I get an XK140 Trophet Coupé with a racing machine from 1957. I got a Morgan. <laughs> I love these cars. They're so beautiful. And can you drive to Burgundy in them? Oh yes, I was two years ago. I drove with another friend from from Düsseldorf, where he's a merger acquisition at Deloitte in Shanghai. He has a Morgan, and he took the Morgan. I took the XK. Beautiful weather like that, you know. Off and on, and very slowly over the countryside to Burgundy it was absolutely gorgeous, you know. <laughs> that sounds absolutely ideal. Listen, Ernie, it's been great talking to you. I mean, everybody can hear listening to this podcast. Your incredible passion, sense of humor, sense of fun is just, well, it's just infectious. It really is. It's been great talking to you. I hope to see you very soon over a bottle of wine, my friend. Oh, it's yes. Been you too to long. Have, I have to show you all these kind of wines from the barrels. It's amazing, you know? It's amazing. It's, it's, amazing. it's on my, it's on my bucket list. 10 years in the barrel. And they're fresh <laughs> like yesterday. <laughs> Thanks, Ernie. Thanks. I'll see you soon. Bye. Thank Bye. you very much. <laughs>
What an incredible guy, just so much passion for wine. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Isabel Salgado from Bodegas Fieboa in Rias Baixas. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.